Anyway, thanks, Megan. Um, so good to be with you. My name is Abby Odio. I'm a pastor here at Bethany Greenlake. Uh, welcome to all of you joining us from wherever it is that you are today in this moment. Um, happy Mother's Day. Uh, if ever there was a year to celebrate moms and the um, female mom-like folks in our midst, I think uh, today is, this year is certainly that year. So we do that with great joy. Um, Megan and I were chatting just before the service, and she mentioned something uh, really wise that I just wanted to pass along. She said, you know, one of the best ways that we can celebrate moms and, um, you know, the folks, the women in our lives who work so hard um, just on behalf of others in the name of love is really to mother them, to show up for them, to encourage them. Chocolate and cards and gifts are great. By all means, do that. But at the end of the day, they need our support. They need our encouragement. So I just offered that word to you. We are continuing this week in our series through the book of James, a series that we are calling Displaced because it's this word written by James to um, a displaced people. They've left their home in Jerusalem, not by choice, and they're living in these really trying and difficult times. Now, if you've been with us up till this point in the series, uh, you'll know that each week, the message has been exceptionally timely for this sort of historical moment in which we find ourselves. And this week is no exception, as James speaks directly to some of the internal division that is happening in the church. Now, we all know that this is something that is happening amongst us. There's a, a sociologist at the University of Illinois at Chicago named Michael Emerson. And this man, he's been studying Christian and religious congregations for nearly 30 years. And in a recent article he published, he said, speaking about the, Mer uh, the American church, he stated, this is a level of conflict that I've never seen. What is different now? The conflict is over entire worldview, politics, race, how we are to be in the world, and even what religion and faith are for. And this is not news to us. Most of, this, most of us have felt the pains of this division in our church, right? Here in, in Bethany, we have certainly seen this experience that felt it in our, in our small group, in our extended family or our uh, nuclear family, in our schools. There's not a level of relationships that really has not been touched by what it is he's getting at here by this division, some of us listening to this message right now, we hold this strong conviction that masks and vaccines are the marks of Christian love, while others hold that rejection of those very things are the mark of Christian courage. Some of us hold that our religious liberties have never been more firmly established. Again, others say they've never been at greater risk. And these are just a few examples of this sort of exasperated disagreement within the church that has led to um, everything from sort of this confused restlessness that people are feeling, this kind of wonderment, should I be here or should I go? Should I go find a place where everyone's like me and everyone agrees with me? That's on the one hand. Then on the other hand, there's just this kind of dismissal of the church itself. Many people just walking away. This isn't what I knew when I came to faith. And in the midst of it, uh, this critical and hard moment, these words of James, they find us 
And this scripture, it invites us to reframe our allegiances, not in terms of a side, not in terms of conservative or progressive, but in terms of a person. And so today we navigate this tension focusing on three real specific invitations that we see in James chapter four, which are this, to refocus, to realign, and to receive. To refocus, to realign, and to receive. Before we do that, before we look at God's word together, I invite you to pray with me. Loving Father, we uh, come before you today with humility. God, we look before us at the state of the church and we, um, the state of your community, the state of our nation. (laughs) And God, if there were simple answers, if there were answers that we could come up with in our human wisdom, we would have found them. And so the reality is we need another source. We need another way forward. And Jesus, we know that you hold the key to all things. We know that in you is life and truth. And so we turn this morning to your word of truth. May it find us, may it change us, may it shape us. May we become more like you. May we be part of the healing that you so desire to see in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we look first at this invitation to refocus, refocus. You'll notice James begins this section of the text with a sort of rhetorical question. He asks, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Now, it's interesting. If we stop there and honestly ask this this question, I'm sure we would have all sorts of answers as to why conflict exists right now among us, among us as a church and among us as a nation. And I'd venture to guess that many of us, uh, many of our answers would have to do with some, what someone else is getting wrong, how external circumstances and influence is, have sort of led us to this moment. But you'll notice James follows up with another question in which he immediately confronts that conclusion as if he knows what it is we're all thinking. He says, do they not come from your cravings, which are at war within you? In other words, James knows the human tendency towards blame, towards diminishing our own role in what's broken and elevating the role of the other, of pointing the finger. It's important to name that the context of this passage um, is one in which James is speaking presumably to leaders within the faith community. And so when he talks of cravings, he is specifically calling out their desire for influence, for for power, for self-promotion and sort of the toxic nature of that desire. And he's saying, refocus for a moment, not on the problem with the other, but with the cravings that are within you. And notice he doesn't say that other person is right and you're wrong. He doesn't even speak in detail about the issue at hand. We, we don't really know what it is specifically, but he does say, what is going on inside you? I was recently doing some swim lessons with our oldest son, Mark, and I was trying to show him and explain to him how it is that you doggy paddle in order to stay afloat in the water. You keep your hands and and your arms moving. And um, as I was doing this with him and we were sort of practicing it together, uh, I would let go of him and he would panic and, and he would look all around and he would start breathing heavy and then he'd begin to sink and I would grab him. And finally I said to him, buddy, just keep focused on your body. Like, think about your hands and your feet and keep them moving just how I showed you. Don't focus on the water. And from that point on, as we would practice this skill, he would say aloud over and over again, focus, focus, 
focus. And I share that moment because in a way, this is James' initial call, James's initial call for us. He's saying, you think the problem is everything all around you, the rising water, the senseless people on your Facebook feed, the politician you adamantly disagree with, the pastor who said something that offended you and now you're thinking about leaving. And if that's your starting place, if that's where your attention is fixated, you've missed something really, really, really important about your own calling. It never starts with everything that's wrong in the world. It starts with us. It's deeply personal. This is John 8, where Jesus says, wait, wait, don't throw that stone. Look at your own heart first. This is Matthew 7, where he says, maybe take a moment, notice that log in your own eye before you turn out there. And Jesus continually offered this invitation because he knew that our human tendency to utterly miss our own stuff, to live comfortably in spaces of self-deception is very high. This past year, I read this really interesting little book called The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives for Everyday Life. And just the the quick thesis of the book is that much of our life is driven by motives of self-interest that we keep buried deep below the surface because they're sort of unflattering. And the co-authors actually had an entire chapter on how this plays out in religious circles and religious communities. They made um, an interesting, and I would argue true observation that within religious circles, we assume that our beliefs inform our behavior. And of course, um, we ascribe to this within our community. If I believe God to be love, then I will act in accordance with God's love by loving my neighbor. However, the authors of the book argue that what actually happens is a bit more fluid. They suggest it's not just beliefs that influence behavior, but that religion itself is sort of this complex and layered intermingling of belief, behavior, and social incentives. Really interesting. In other words, it's not just our beliefs that inform how we act in the world, but rather some combination of that and what will serve me best given my web of social connections. And James echoes this very same sentiment when he uses the phrase double-minded. In verse 8, he says, the notion here is that uh, his listeners' motives are not grounded solely in God's wants and God's vision, not grounded solely in their belief in who God is. In other words, in actuality, we don't often just believe in God and therefore love our neighbor. We also consider things like, will loving my neighbor impact my social status and the direction I'm looking to move? Are people watching as I go about loving my neighbor right now? Will this make me look good? Is it convenient for me to love my neighbor? And what is really at stake for me personally if I don't? What can my neighbor offer in return for my love? And of course, this is a really painful set of questions to answer honestly. And so often we just don't. We we hide our true motives from ourselves, myself included. And so I invite all of us to consider that question. James asks, what are cravings are at war within you? What do you not have that you desire and what are you trying to do in order to get it? Desire for reputation that leads to speaking mistruth. Desire for comfort that leads to overspending and overconsumption. Desire for power that leads to a refusal to bear witness to the story of someone else because they're different from us. The point of this examination, don't mishear me, it's not to induce a sense of shame, 
but rather to understand that until we can refocus on our own hearts and our own motives, our hyperfixation and cynicism and ongoing, ongoing critique of the world out there will get us nowhere. We'll sink in that water. So we refocus. Now, not surprisingly, the authors of that book I mentioned about human motives, they concluded that because self-deception plays such a key role in religion, uh, religion, all religion itself is sort of a big sham. Now, thankfully for us, James makes this same acknowledgement, but for him, it's not the end point. It's not a sham. It's not a reason to give up on God or a faith community. It's the starting point. Well, the authors of the book essentially said, this is proof there is no God. James essentially says, here is proof, proof you really need God. Let's talk about what that actually looks like. And that brings us to this second invitation, which is this realign. If we continue in our text, uh, verse three says this, you do not ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order, order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, what James indicates here is that something has been become misaligned for this faith community on the level of desire. They are asking for, presumably praying for, things that do not align with God's kingdom, God's expansive vision for what the world is supposed to look like. Instead, James tells us they have befriended the world and become an enemy to God. That's verse 4. And so James indicates the core of this problem about motives and desires, it's relational. We have befriended the wrong party and our desires therefore are misplaced. And so in order to synchronize our desires with God, we must realign ourselves in friendship first, always, and most with the person of Jesus. In the ancient world, uh, that word friendship that James uses here, it implied something very specific, very particular. The notion of friendship was rooted in Aristotle's definition of that word. And far from being this sort of casual relationship that we often make it out to be in our day with, you know, hundreds of friends on Facebook, to be a friend in the ancient world involved a deep commitment to invest in one another. There was a, a real fidelity to it. A person had a very limited number of friends because friendship held weight in a person's life. It cost you something. To have a friend was to open up your life to allow your heart and your soul and your desires to be shaped and influenced by that person. And so here, James employs that word as a way of asking his audience, who have you aligned yourself with? Who or what is shaping your heart and your desire? It's interesting, since the start of the pandemic in March of last year, uh, studies show us that media use, which had been on the incline for some time, has really just soared. According to one national study, average media consumption went from three hours and 17 minutes per day pre-pandemic to six hours and 59 minutes per day currently. It's interesting to take those nearly seven hours and think about them in the context of what James calls friendship with the world. To think about the way that those hours we are in, with those hours, we are opening ourselves up to be shaped, to be formed by news sources, each with their own agenda, by social media influencers who are literally being paid to influence our desires in certain ways, by entertainment that gives dimension to how it is that we see the world. 
Now, don't mishear me. This isn't like a talk about going out and burning all your CDs like some of us were taught to do in the 90s. That's, that's not what this is. I don't mean to demonize any of those things, but I do mean to say that as followers of Christ, it's important to understand that these spaces that are consuming so much of our time and our attention, they are not neutral. They're giving shape to who we are, to how we see the other, to who it is that we're becoming. And so James invites his readers and us as well to look honestly at our life and say, where is realignment needed? Where have I allowed my desires to be shallowly formed in an unworthy friendship? How is that impacting my life, my story? I'll never forget shortly after uh, Sam and I were married, we got invited to this very fancy wedding of one of his former coworkers. Um, it was certainly kind of the most extravagant affair I'd ever been a part of. And I didn't know anyone except sort of the, the groom that was getting married, but um, we were seated at a table with a few other couples. And at one point in the night, I ended up alone at this table with two of the couples And it sort of generally happens at these things. Um, People started talking about kind of what they do for work. And two of the men at the table jumped in and shared that they work in various sectors of the startup technology world. Both had sold their companies for extraordinary amounts of money. And that conversation sort of evolved into how they were living now and, and spending that money. And this included extravagant vacations on private jets. There was even some talk about like which country permitted certain substances that are illegal here in the U.S. And so this went on for some time. And the four of them were talking back and forth about all of this. Like it was the most natural thing in the world. Like everyone just rents jets and islands and whatnot for the weekend. Meanwhile, I'm sitting there completely dumbfounded by all that's unfolding, trying to sort of wrap my head around this reality that's before me. Then one of them turned to me and asked that inevitable question, like kind of noticing that I've been there all along. Um, So Abby, what is it that you do? And I said, well, uh, believe it or not, I'm I'm actually a pastor. And there was that sort of predictable uh, uh, and uncomfortable silence that followed my contribution to the conversation. Um, But then one of the women in the group turned to me and I just uh, surprised me. She said, Abby, that is so great. We know God too. Now, my point is not at all to pass judgment on their lifestyles or the validity of their relationship to God. She kind of gestured to her husband as she had said that. But those words, we know God too, they have sort of long echoed in my mind as I consider the crisis of evangelicalism in our nation the divisions within our churches and families. So often faith is not one that flows out of friendship with Christ, but one in which Christ is more like this trinket or or sort of decoration that we engage when it feels helpful to support desires which have been shaped apart from God and God's story. And what James is inviting us to do in this text is realign ourselves in order that we might not be people who say, you know, I know Jesus too. Like he's this kind of, cool little sidekick over here, but rather I know Jesus first and I know Jesus most and I have opened my life to him in friendship and here is what that looks like. And James is clear throughout this book. Evidence of that is care for the poor. It's using our means to influence others for the good, not for judgment or self-promotion, but for love for showing up for our neighbor, for showing up for the folks right here on Aurora. 
And this realignment in friendship is something that elsewhere in scripture, we kind of think about or call repentance. James doesn't use that word here, but that's certainly, certainly what he's describing. In the Quaker tradition, there's a simple phrase that defines repentance, and it's simply this, to think differently after having been with. I love that, to think differently after having been with. Friends, this is our invitation to realign ourselves with Christ, to spend time in relationship with Christ so that our desires might be different because of who we have been with, because of who we know best. So this week, I'd invite you to think about how you might structure your day just really practically to pursue friendship with Jesus first and most. If you don't know where to begin with this, uh, we have some tools here at Bethany that we call the inhaling practices. These involve... uh, Practices like Bible study, meditation, and solitude. There's a link in the chat if you're watching online uh, with us, and you can just click that link. It'll offer you some guidance about how to go about engaging in these practices. I'd encourage you, pick one, try it. Try to do it every day this week. And as you consider that, you might also consider what is shaping your desire apart from God? Is it social media? Is it the news? And then make a conscious choice to just turn the volume down on that. You don't need to do away with it altogether. We're not canceling these things. It's important to know what's happening in the world, but rather we're just allocating them to their proper place and their proper influence in our story. And remember, this isn't about legalism. It's about showing up. It's about trusting that we were created for friendship with Christ, that as we draw near to Christ, Christ draws near to us. And that brings us to our Third and final invitation, which is this receive. Receive. This text is by no means easy. And by that, I mean it confronts us in this kind of abrupt way. This is a sort of come to Jesus talk in the truest sort of sense of that word. But if we read it slowly, you'll notice the whole passage sort of hinges on these words from verse six. But he gives all the more grace. But he gives all the more grace. It's interesting as we find ourselves on this journey of refocusing, not on everyone else and all of their problems, but actually looking at the plank in our own eye, we find that we are, it's really complicated. We are beloved and worthy and made in the image of God. Absolutely. But we're also human. We're also fickle. We're judgmental and deceptive. We bring uh, to our life in this moment, stories and histories and influences and social locations, all of which Uh, have played into who we are, both the beauty and the brokenness. And it can be confusing. It can feel confusing. And here in the midst of this hard text, James essentially says, you are the problem, but he also offers this word, not just of grace, but of greater grace. It's a really important phrase. That is a grace that continues to outrun and outlast and cover the depth of our own self-deception and misplaced desire. A greater grace that is not this one-time transaction where I just sort of say, okay, God, I believe in you. But rather, like Paul says in Acts 17, in this God, you live and you move and you have your being. That's grace. That's greater grace. And within this greater grace, we find not only forgiveness, but this ongoing sense that my deepest human needs for identity and belonging and love are indeed met in the death and resurrection of Christ day by day by day, moment by moment by moment. And so far from being just this transactional thing, 
grace in our story then becomes transformative. Really important. Grace is not transactional. It's transformative. The warring grace that, uh, the warring desires that lead to conflict and violence and attacks and judgment become silenced as we increasingly find what it is that we actually need and want and were created for in relationship with Christ. There's a deep sense of contentment here, of longing, satisfied in God's giving. And that doesn't mean we come, become passive. That doesn't mean that we stop speaking up in the name of justice and truth. But it does mean that we do that in a way that more mirrors who Christ is. Gentleness, respect, civility, love. Many of you know the parable of the prodigal son that uh, Jesus talks about, uh, tells in Luke chapter 15. It's a story that we sort of rightfully elevate uh, as this perfect picture of grace. And I, I totally agree. It's absolutely that. A father has two sons. One of them prematurely asks for his inheritance and then goes off and wastes it. Then a, a famine hits, and this wayward son, he has nothing. So he comes home, and despite his behavior, he is welcomed. His father runs to greet him. And it's this picture of loving grace. It's, it's this picture that I, I hope you receive into your life today, no matter what it is that you've done, no matter what your story has held up to this point, there's a father who greets you and loves you. But then there's the older son. And this son has been with the father all along. By his account, he's done it all right. And, he's, and given that, he's envious. He's, he's jealous of his brother. There is no contentment in his spirit. And I love the father's response to him. In this profound moment, he says, son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. In other words, grace is not just this one-time party. It's also this daily relationship of beauty and of abundance and of giving. You get to wake up each and every day and experience the feast, son. Everything I have is yours. And this is the father's way of saying, come, live in it, see it, receive it. And then, and then for goodness sake, come celebrate your brother because a life transformed by grace will most certainly offer it in abundance. And unfortunately, the inverse of that is true. As we drift from the utter gift of grace, we sink in a sea of judgment, of discontentment, of restlessness, of blame, of cynicism, of broken relationship. I love how the great theologian Willie Jennings talks about grace. He says this, this is real untamed grace. It is the grace that replaces our fantasies of power with God's fantasy for desire for people. God's fantasy for desire for people. In other words, we know we re we've received great grace because we'll be quick to extend it, quick to show up to the party. We know when we've received great grace because our desires themselves will begin to shift. Being right becomes less important than actually embodying the love and justice of God towards neighbor. We, as a, we know as a church when we've received great grace because the bickering and the restlessness and the fights over face masks will stop and our reputation out there in the world is, will be one of our good fruit of people and communities around us beginning to flourish, our unhoused neighbors having a safe place to live and to be and experience love. 
So as we close today, I want to offer you just a moment to receive and to sit in God's grace wherever you are, in the car, at home with your your roommates or your housemates, eating brunch as you celebrate your mom. Whatever this moment looks like for you, I'd invite you just to pause for a moment. If it helps, you can put your hands before you, but I just invite you to hear these true words. Wherever misplaced desire has led you, God's grace in Christ is greater. Receive it. Wherever your ego or your insecurity has driven you to judgment of another, God's grace in Christ is greater. Receive it. Wherever the sharp edges of your own sin have inflicted pain on another, God's grace in Christ is greater. Receive it. Wherever friendship with God in your life has been replaced and is not serving you well, God's grace in Christ is greater. Receive it. Wherever you are right now, know that all that Jesus has, even his very life, has been given for you. Receive it. Let's pray together. Loving Father, as we as a community receive your untamed grace, We indeed asked that it would transform us. We asked that instead of contributing to the noise and the conflict in our world, we would learn to be content in you. That our deepest desires would be met in you. We pray that such contentment would not lead us to passivity, but to active and loving engagement with the world. That we would indeed be your hands and your feet embodiments of your love, conduits of your justice, administers of something that can only ever be found in friendship with you. God, it is a great and undeserved gift to be your friend. We pray this in Jesus' name.